The evil of corruption reaches into every corner of the world. Corruption lies at the heart of the most urgent problems we face. Welcome to Confidential Brief, where Chad Thomas takes you into the stories behind the issues facing our society. Good afternoon. You're listening to Confidential Brief. My name is Chad Thomas, and we're live on 101.9 FM in Johannesburg and broadcasting worldwide on highfm.com. Today we get to chat to um, a lady that uh, has done so much previously in reporting um, serious issues relating to the current status quo in South Africa. She was a former journalist at the Sunday Times and now works in content marketing. Her name is Shantini Naidu, and we're going to be chatting to her about her book, Women Surviving Apartheid Prisons. In this day and age, we, we tend to focus so much on the negative. We tend to focus on what's happening in our country in respect of corruption, but we forget the sacrifices that were made by so many people in bringing about freedom. And yes, we have our challenges. Yes, we have our problems, but we can never, ever forget what our country has been through. And although right now it's a struggle, and it's a struggle against corruption, it's a struggle against fraud, there was a previous struggle, which was a massive struggle against injustice, just of another kind. And that's what we're going to be chatting about today. Um, joining me all the way from, um, I don't know if she's joining me all the way from KZM, but it's Shantini Naidu. Shantini, welcome to the show. Hi, Chad, and thanks for having me. Shantini, I must apologize. Uh, my, my mojo is a little bit off air. We, we're operating remotely today, and with the weather the way it is, there may be slight interference. So I do apologize in advance to both you and to our listeners because today's conversation is said to be extremely interesting, and I'm just hoping there's no interruptions. How are you hearing us on your side? I can hear you well. I hope mine is okay. I've got a terrible storm outside, so I, you know, I hope we're not having a connection issue there. Chatini, I think the whole country's in a, in a bit of a, a weather conundrum after what we've seen with this, um, this, this, this cyclone that's now a depression storm and has now become a tropical storm or, or it's been downgraded. But nonetheless, we can only think about those poor people that have been impacted on it. And I'm sure they've been impacted quite badly. But South Africa has put its air force on, on a prepared status and will be helping those people, especially those in Mozambique, like we've seen previously. But let's get to the topic of the day. Your book's been described as a, a book that looks at four freedom fighters who were held in solitary confinement for more than a year and subjected to brutal torture in a bid to force them to testify against their comrades. They refused to do so. This is what's so indicative of that generation, and we don't get to hear enough about that generation. And your book looks at four of these people that are still alive that were subjected to this. Joyce Akakani Rankin, Rita Nzanga, Shanti Naidu, and Nondwe Mankale. And I'd like to start at the beginning. Where did you decide and what was the reasoning behind you writing this book? Um, well, Chad, it started out uh, long before it was ever envisioned to be a book um, as an article for the Sunday Times, as you mentioned. And um, it was around the time of Winnie Mandela's death um, that I was reporting on this trial, which many people had um, either never heard of or completely forgotten about, you know, in terms of our, yeah, our country's uh, freedom struggle. Um, the trial was in 1969 and, and, you know, just about 50 years ago. And I was intrigued even then as a journalist to hear um, the stories of these comrades 
of Winnie Mandela's who, who had attended her funeral and given eulogies and things like that. So it really started out with an, as an article around her death and um, developed from there. In fact, I adopted it as my master's thesis at, at WITS. And um, to, at, towards the end of that thesis, realized that this was a much bigger story to tell and that it was, um, you know, uh, something that should be expanded into a book. So of, of the seven women that, that were involved in this particular trial in 1969, three have passed away, one included, of course, Winnie Marikizela Mandela. Um, but women and the role that they've played in the struggle is well documented, yet it doesn't get discussed as much as it should be. Why do you think that is? Because when one looks at the march of the women to the union buildings, that was a, a discerning and, and, and a very deciding point in our country's history because this was a struggle now that involved women at the forefront. Yes, absolutely. I, I think there is some documentation. Um, I think there isn't enough, as with a lot of the apartheid era um you know, the trials and the um, everyday lives of people were not documented that well because obviously it was banned at that time for them to do this. And and, and in some cases, you know, it, it um, gave away um, who was involved in the movement, which was also illegal at the time. So um, for me, the importance was that, um, you know, in telling Winnie Mandela's story, and I think if you remember at the time, there was a lot of uproar um, on particularly social media about the way her story was told. And while it's a very controversial story, it is still, um, you know, there are many parts of it. And um, when there is an obituary uh, written about someone of such great stature, you have to have all sides of it. And this is what I felt was missing, not only from Winnie Mandela's story, which was then picked up afterwards by a number of writers, but, but these women who were, who I'd met and interviewed, um, who were part of that 1969 trial, terrible torture and lengthy detention. You know, um, I, I sometimes have to remind myself about it when I think about our uh, current level three lockdown and that it's been a year almost and, and, and to be reminded of their lengthy time in solitary confinement, you know, under much worse circumstances. So stories like that have not been documented as well as they should be. And um, there is definitely an appetite for it, for us to know about where we come from, where, what the role the woman had, and, and how they can inspire us today. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk to you specifically about the 1969 case in particular, why they were held, what happened to them during that time, and what happened subsequent. And then I want to come back to something very interesting that you stated earlier, and that was the fact that we didn't get to know as much as we do today due to the restrictions on reporting. And whether having this this new age where we have such transparent reporting and such access to the media at our fingertips, whether this has impacted on telling the stories of the past. We'll be back straight after this. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High fm 
you're listening to Confidential Brief live in Johannesburg on 101.9 FM and broadcasting worldwide on highfm.com. Today we get to chat to Shantini Naidu about her book, Women Surviving Apartheid's Prisons. And it's, it's a sad read, but it's a very important read. And before we went to break, I mentioned to Shantini that I wanted to bring up something that she had said early in the conversation. And that is the fact that so much went unreported during the apartheid era because of the apartheid machines control over the media and it's almost become a double-edged sword we now have information overload and we hear so much about corruption on a day-to-day basis yet there was so much corruption going on back then but it just could not be reported on it was not allowed to be reported on so before we get back to this this story from 1969 i want to ask shantini her her opinion on 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 today's media especially in respect of people being able to basically post and and youtube be able to receive information at your fingertips you know um i actually write about it a little bit in the book but um our media at the moment is in in such a difficult space it's uh there's so much information out there that it's hard to monetize um, good quality reporting um, because of of how much is out there available free, and um, it affects how um, journalism can grow because obviously uh, you know you've got to have resources behind um, uh, good journalism as well. And um, so we have Im- uh, information overload, but also you know I, I wonder what uh, the consumption of it is because. Uh, people almost want to um, to uh, to know a lot, but also to escape from uh, from the really in-depth fa- factual things fa- in some cases. So um, it's all you know. It's looking at how people interrogate information around COVID-19, for instance. Like you would rather hear from uh, a friend or family member sending you a WhatsApp video, which may not be accurate, than than to read an actual research report or you know a health journalism piece. So, um, yeah, I suppose that the, the um, consumption is it, it, in a strange space, and so is, um, and that creates a, uh, you know, a difficulty for journalists as well because of, of how people are reading and, and what they're reading. So, um, it's a very interesting time uh, in the it information is. age, and I, I think we're learning to sift it out a little more. You're making very valid points, but when one looks at a period like 1969, and the research that would go into a story and the fact that most journalists wouldn't know about what was going on unless they had contacts in court or they had contacts within law enforcement or contacts within the, in the liberation movement who could tip them off as to what was happening. In today's day and age, it's not about the story. It's about the journalist wanting to be first. And when you look at something like Twitter, 280 characters, most people don't look at the story. They look at that, that very brief summary and just retweet it. And I think something was very interesting that came up during the American elections was that you couldn't, during that period, during the disputed part of the elections, just retweet a story. Twitter compelled you to actually read the story before you could retweet the link. And I think that is so important in this day and age because we, there is so much misinformation and disinformation. And like you rightly said, we don't know quite what to believe and we're too quick to share certain things. So let's go back to 1969. How is it that you were able to collate this information to put together such a thorough book considering the restrictions on reporting in those days? 
You know, it's it's actually fascinating that we're talking about this now because one of the people in the trial, uh, Joyce Sigakane Rankin, was arrested because she was a journalist. And, um, you know, she um, she was uh, in media around the time of the Ravonia trial, but she wasn't writing about that particularly. She was writing about the um, daily lives of, um, of, of ordinary South Africans, which... Um, at the time was taboo because the apartheid government didn't want people outside of the country to know um, the atrocities of what was going on here. And um, and Joyce was writing about what it was like to, to live in Soweto, for instance, at the time. And um, this put her um, in the uh, target line f- um, for the security branch, rather, to... Um, to stop her from from producing any more of this work, which was getting international attention. And, um, you know, uh, in terms of gathering the information at that time, I was very, very lucky that the woman had very distinct memories of their their work, their activism um, at the time, organizing, as they called it. There were um, a few international publications that had written a little bit about the trial because at the time we had people from the UK defending our um, political trialists here in South Africa. So there was a little bit of that. And, you know, they are, that, that's the kind of the point of the story is that there are so many other trials that were really important, that were very mu- much part of the machinery of, the, of breaking down the uh, apartheid structures at the time. And many of them have gone untold. It happens to be that this one was linked to Winnie Mandela. She was, uh, you know, a key figurehead while the male leadership were in prison. And that, you know, the importance of the trial was that if she had also been in prison for a lengthy period, we don't know which way our democracy would have gone. So um, the information was scarce, but a lot of the book is personal accounts from the women and, um, you know, more about how it affected their lives, their mental well-being. And it tells us a little bit about where we are as a society today, um, you know, by drawing on their stories. What's so important in South Africa is the concept of restorative justice. And when we talk about this, it seems to upset certain elements of society. And they like to just say, listen, we had the TRC. Let's forgive and, and in some cases forget and move on and concentrate on today's problems. Now, I've had conversations with various people, and a lot of people are not happy with this. They're not happy with the fact that people just refer back to the TRC. It's cut and dried. Let's move on. We've seen now recently with a teacher that was tragically um, – well, he died, let's rather say under mysterious circumstances at the old John Foster Square. We've seen a doctor that died. He was the first white person to die um, in, the, in, in custody of the apartheid forces. And we've seen a resurgence of wanting to hold people accountable. Do, do these four women that you interviewed still want to see people that hurt them, that tortured them, brought to justice in some way or another? Um, I think they've come to a point of uh, forgiveness, which is really um, a difficult thing to do. Um, you know, there's so much research being done around this, uh, particularly in South Africa. Um, you know, I, there's, a, there's some information from Professor Pumla Kobodo Madikizela, who, who's done a lot of work on forgiveness and um, restorative justice in South Africa and, and how it's all linked. And um, the woman, you know, the chief torturer who's in, in the book as well, he was also responsible for, you know, the June 16th um, massacres and things like that. He, 
um, Roy Raswanapur, he was a, a you know a captain in the security branches at the time, who died um, literally while receiving a pension from the Mandela government, and you know they obviously didn't see justice for their um, for their incarceration and their torture and their exile as well. However, for them, the, the fact that there is democracy means that it is a sad story, but it's a triumphant story that their sacrifice was worth it. And saying that, um, you know, with all the flaws of democracy now, um, there's, there is a generational trauma that exists in South Africa. And if we, we are going to say that the TRC was a magic bullet that solved all of that, we're going to be very mistaken. It's something that is going to be with us for many, many years. And until the South Africans you're speaking about who don't recognize that, um, until they do recognize it and understand that, you know, the people that we are working alongside and walking alongside and seeing at the shopping malls are carrying a burden mentally, um, we won't move forward as a country. So we cannot, um, you know, uh, we may be able to forgive, but we can't forget without um, reconciling this in our minds as well, um, as all South Africans, whether we were affected or not. Um, because actually that that's a bit uh, incorrect because we were all affected by apartheid and um, in different ways. And we've, we have, uh, many of us have, just because we didn't live through that time, think that we don't need to deal with it, but we absolutely have to. We do, and there's, there's definitely a legacy that's been left behind. I read a book last year which I, I believe was titled incorrectly because it will throw any potential reader off. It was the ANC Spy Bible by Mo Sheikh, but it's more mm-hmm. of an emotive journey of his life that you read about and how he mentally prepares himself because he knows he's going to be taken into custody by the security branch and he knows what's going to happen to him and when one reads that one realizes and it awakens you to the reality that these people were leading double lives they were leading a normal life with a family but at the same time they were fighting for the liberation of our country and they were targets and as targets they lived in constant fear of going into custody because they knew what would happen in custody we've heard horror stories i spoke about the doctor who was who was killed we've spoken about the teacher that was killed but one of the, 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 the interviews that impacted me on the most was Raymond Sutner. To this day, he suffers severe post-traumatic stress as a result of what happened to him while he was imprisoned. So of the four ladies that you interviewed, do any of them still carry with them not the physical scars but the emotional scars? And does anything impact on them on a day-to-day basis in respect of their incarceration and their torture? I think absolutely so. Um, you know, that, that was part of the reason for me looking into the story because there was, uh, uh, documentation of, uh, Winnie Mandela's, um, post-traumatic stress, which, um, you know, was, uh, was not diagnosed formally from what I understand. But, um, you know, when people spoke about, um, interviewing her afterwards and, um, and discussing with her uh, her experiences, it did um, it did show signs um, of um, post traumatic stress in, ter- in in terms of her behavior, in terms of her attitudes towards people, and um, and obviously you know uh, physical uh, impacts such as you know what was her detention and terrible diet a part of uh, the reason that she um, didn't live longer. So so these women definitely have had effects. I think. 
you know, it's really interesting. I spoke to a geriatrician recently, a person who works with older people, and she um, she said that um, one of the things that uh, she believes anecdotally uh, affects South Africans who were part of the struggle movement and incarcerated was um, um, be, um, early uh, becoming senile very early and uh, memory loss and and things like that. So the, the ladies in, in the trial that I wrote about have definitely mentioned things like this, but at the same time, you know, looking at the situation in our country and the way that, um, that the struggle unfolded, it wasn't regular uh, practice for people to go out, out and seek psychological help. So only one of them has had formal sort of psychological therapy, and she... Um, definitely has um, had to learn how to deal with panic attacks. You know, they talk about nightmares, not wanting to be um, alone, and and all, and also just you know a very um, it can also strengthen the mind in in certain ways, which you would have also um, got from the Mo Shake book, in that it makes them uh, much more um, their world view is much bigger. They are much more resilient in terms of you know. Um, if we think about complaining about things that are happening in this democracy, they can see the bigger picture about how this is a very early part of our timeline in terms of South African history. So, you know, those all those effects are there, and it's with their children as well, and their grandchildren. So this is why I say all those mental effects, are, they pass down through generations. You, you you speak a lot about Winnie Madikizela Mandela and her life has been well documented and what a tragic life it was. Um, she was a lone voice for a long time while her husband was imprisoned, while other people had gone into exile, while some were, were underground. And she became the target of the apartheid forces. And at one stage, she was she was banished to, to the town of Brunfurt. You then talk about the other two that have passed away, but we, we, we are happy to hear that four are still living. And it would be interesting for our listeners to know what happened to them post-apartheid. You mentioned that Joyce Kakani Rankin became a journalist. Tell us a little bit more about her life, Rita's life, Shanti's life, Ndondre's life, and, and, and how they've moved on and what happened to them post-apartheid. Um, so it was very interesting because they, they've they had, uh, you know, their life stories sometimes it reminds me of, of a movie script because Joyce, for instance, um, she was one of the other reasons for her arrest was that she was in a um, she was engaged to a Scottish doctor who was working here in in um, um, Johannesburg to um, you know um, they were take, giving medical care to people who were obviously um, unable to access it at the time and and Joyce was um, uh, uh, so it was due to join him in in exile and just before she could leave. Um, she was arrested and then um, were imprisoned for nearly two years. So she broke off the engagement and, um, you know, when she um, was finally released, uh, she also escaped into exile. And it's very interesting how they happened to end up in the same area in um, Uganda, I think it was, and, um, and then resumed their relationship and went on to have a beautiful family of five children and you know, um, were married until he passed away uh, just recently in 2011. And then, you know, she, in that time, both continued their work on the, on the continent, even though they went into the UK for a little while, but came back to, um, Southern Africa and continued with the struggle, um, until democracy. 
and they were able to move back. So, um, and, you know, Shanti Naidu as well went into exile in the UK. Um, and Manondwe stayed in, in Port Elizabeth. And um, Marita Nzanga stayed in Soweto, but all her children were um, sent into exile. And her husband, unfortunately, was killed in detention. Um, and she remained in, in Soweto, but all of them continued with their work. Um, despite their, you know, detention and and post um, apartheid, you know, a, a few of them worked for um, government. Some some worked. Uh, Joyce worked at the SABC, and um, Shanti Naidu worked at Brit. But um, for Manondwesh, it was really interesting that she she did work a little bit with the ANC, but you know, went back to a very normal life, um, working in a retail um, environment and. Uh, you know, and lives in a very simple home. They all do, uh, you know, live very quiet, sort of simple lives in South Africa. You wouldn't know that they were struggle heroes if you passed them in the street. So, um, and they, they sort of still observe and watch and, and see how things are um, unfolding in this country. And, and, you know, I think the one thing they shared with me is that they all know it's um, still a long road ahead for us as South Africans. We've got a lot to recover from economically, psychologically, everything. It's very true. And people tend to forget the, the sacrifices that were made. You mentioned how one of the ladies' husbands died um, whilst also in custody of the security branch and how others had to leave um, the country of their birth and go to exile after this, this very traumatic incident. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to chat a little bit more about these freedom fighters and how those remaining freedom fighters, those who, who we're still lucky enough to have amongst us, can contribute towards our country today and perhaps remind the new generation in leadership that the sacrifices that were made were not made as a reason to plunder, but as a reason to serve a nation and to liberate a people. We'll be back after this. Hashtag you don't have to be Jewish. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. You're listening to Confidential Brief. My name is Chad Thomas, and today we're talking to Shantini Naidu about her very important book, Women Surviving Apartheid's Prisons. Shantini, when you speak to these women and you, you hear about what they endured to bring about the liberation of our country and we think back to the joy of the liberation, do you sometimes think that a lot of it hasn't been delivered upon in respect of the fact that we have this massive disparity between the haves and the have-nots? And do you think there's a role that these elders can play in holding our leadership to account? You know, um, I think they've done so much in their lives in terms of giving their uh, their time and their, their the sacrifice they made away from their families, um, you know, to be part of the movement and and to have, um, you know, known that there was detention and torture um, coming, but um, you know, to continue with it anyway. Um, so, I think in terms of advice, it's it's not it's not even something that they might be asked for, but what it is is. For, for us as ordinary people and for our leaders is to do what our constitution tells us, and that is to remember those who came before us and those who fought in the struggle. It's in our constitution as South Africans. We, 
um, you know, very simple um, but very big task, asking us to to remember them and 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 do whatever we do in their footsteps and with the same sort of dedication to our country. And we know that hasn't happened in the past. We know that people, even those who were in, in prisons and things like that, still um, were not strong enough to um, to continue um, with their work in a in a sort of righteous way afterwards. But that's their um, their legacy to share of the people that are in the story and and others, the you know the, the founding fathers of our democracy. Um, fathers and mothers, I should say, and to to know their legacy, I think automatically changes your mindset. And this is something that um, you know is is self sought advice. It's not them giving it and not sharing it, but it's for us to go and find where we come from as South Africans and to consider ourselves all part of this big um, country. You know, to not separate ourselves from parts of it, which is what apartheid did um, and to realize that they are part of our DNA and um, you know and this is um, this is what their legacy is to, um, to to try and let people know their sacrifice know what they did and and act accordingly and that's what makes a book like yours so important because it's a reminder to the current generation of the sacrifices made in the past and that the current generation can appreciate those sacrifices that were made. However, again, conversely, we have a situation in a country where we have this abject poverty, but more importantly, we don't have this communication with the youth about these these struggles stalwarts. Everybody knows about Nelson Mandela. Everybody knows about Oliver Tembo. They know about the sacrifices of Steve Biko. They don't realize just how many people sacrifice not just their time, their lives. They put themselves at risk. And I think if this message can be taken and it can be communicated in the right way through books such as yourselves, through uh, written by people such as yourselves, and articles like you you wrote previously – Perhaps people then can appreciate more of where we are today compared to where we were 30, 40 years ago. How do we go about communicating this to a new generation? You know, this is the thing. I think it's it's a really interesting time in terms of people looking for uh, for knowledge. As you were saying earlier, you know, we are there is a lot of information out there, but the younger generation is very, um, you know, it is a new type of activism. It is, is a new type of um, of uh, them wanting to make change in the world, uh, which we are seeing so much. And in fact, I must say, you know, the book title that you've shared is, is the uh, American version that's being launched next week. It is, um, in South Africa, the book is called Women in Solitary, Inside the Female Resistance to Apartheid, and it's published by Tafelberg here. And, you know, the, the reason for this book uh, being selected for publication is that um, it was, uh, there is an appetite amongst young people uh, to go and seek information. And it's something that, you know, they have to pursue on their own. We, we can either let them be disillusioned by uh, things that are not going well. You know, uh, economically, the world is, a, is in a global sort of recession at the moment. 
But at the same time, there's a huge spirit of activism. I mean, look, we're so hopeful by what's going on in the U.S. And, um, you know, and even in South Africa, we've got a lot that's looking positive. But you have to find it. You have to um, want to be, um, you know, taught in this way. Because it's not in our history syllabus. It's not going to be in our history syllabus for a long time. But if a young person wants to be influenced in the right way, they, they can go out and seek this knowledge. And I think if us as, you know, um, I don't want to say older generation, but, you know, when, when they are teenagers and, um, you know, impressionable youth in our company, we can suggest things to them, such as, you know, read stories like this, even if it's um, not this particular book, read about the other people who came before us. And it's it's wonderful that people are doing this even online on Twitter. They are historians um, who are sharing bits and pieces of, of our history, beautiful photos, and um, it's a positive message that's sent in amidst all the noise. It's just for us to filter it and retain it. So... Um, you know, I, I just hope that um, for young people who are listening, it would be something that um, they do with their lives instead of um, thinking only of, um, you know, using their social media as a platform for for beautiful things and, and you know, experiences and things like that. They can also use it for good and to learn and to broaden their minds. Very important point that Shantini, congratulations on having the book published in America, albeit under a slightly different name. And in closing, I have to ask you, um, obviously being a, 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 a person who's proudly um, a, a woman activist and an activist that likes to bring forward uh, the stories of struggle, what are your thoughts on Kamala Harris being elected as the first woman um, vice president of the United States? It's the most, you know, it's, it gives us hope. It's, you know, these, uh, she's had numerous, um, senior roles in government and in law enforcement in the U.S. And, you know, it's not, um, for her, this is another accolade. It's a huge accolade. But what it does is creates representativity for all the young people who we were talking about just now to see someone that looks like them and, um, who is a woman to, that she, that, this is possible, you know, that she, that it's something to aspire to. And, you know, when women are uh, put in, in leadership, it's, uh, it does inspire younger people. So I hope there's, you know, millions and millions of young girls, um, who will look to her and, 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 and see the greatness in themselves. That's all that we can do. Um, you know, as, uh, uh, when we see people who are uh, holding such huge, um, power in their hands, um, you know, is to try and uh, harness a little bit of it for ourselves. So, Gentili, we've posted on the Confidential Brief uh, radio page, um, on, on Facebook a link to, um, the book that's been published in America, but your, your book under another name is still available in South Africa. The name of the South African edition? It's called Women in Solitary Inside the Female Resistance to Apartheid and it's available everywhere. Um, exclusive books, um, take a lot, etc. And I, I really recommend, um, you know, gifting a young woman, uh, particularly, uh, this book. Gentini, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a very, very important topic and it's something that I wish 
more people would communicate down the line to the newer generation so that people can appreciate sacrifices that were made. And thank you for your time today. Thank you for having me, Chad. I appreciate it. The podcast of the show will be uploaded within the next 24 hours on chaifm.com. Be sure to download it, have a listen, share it if you want to with your friends and family. It's an important topic. And I'm going to close with uh, what Bill Fletcher in the United States had to say about the book. He says it's a compelling, heartbreaking, and inspiring work about a largely ignored side to the anti-apartheid National Democratic Revolution in South Africa. Women surviving apartheid's prison examines the South African revolution from the point of view of women, and in this case, women with whom many of us outside of South Africa's borders are unfamiliar. That makes this a must-read, and I do agree with what Bill Fletcher had to say. You've been listening to Confidential Brief. My name is Chad Thomas. I'll be back same time, same place next week right here, 101.9 FM in Johannesburg, streaming worldwide on highfm.com. High FM, your station of choice since 2008.